My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Caden Seaburn and Jay Burns. Many, though not all, trans and gender diverse people seek to access various kinds of healthcare interventions that affirm their gender. This can include taking hormone blockers and or hormones, and it can include various kinds of surgical interventions. The history of trans people's struggles to access this sort of care is long, complicated, and highly contested. They have won significant victories, but many barriers remain. In Ottawa, most trans or gender-diverse youth who wish to receive gender-affirming care are referred by their family physician to the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, or CHEO. And recently in the city, a group of trans and gender-diverse youth themselves did some groundbreaking research into the barriers that they and their peers are facing in receiving appropriate care. They published a report of their findings and are using that work as a basis for advocating for change. The group is called Safety Ottawa. That's spelled S-A-E-F-T-Y, and it stands for Support and Education for Trans Youth. They're Ottawa's only independent youth group run by and for trans and gender-diverse youth. Being independent of formal service-providing organizations allows Safety to remain open to a broader age range than other groups. It allows them to focus on creating spaces that are often purely social and are about meeting, hanging out with, and making community with other trans and gender diverse people rather than the clinical or medical or pathologizing flavor that easily shows up in organization-driven youth groups. And it allows for the possibility of advocacy work driven by the experiences and needs of trans and gender diverse youth themselves. The research in question emerged from conversations that just kept coming up in informal ways among the young people hanging out at safety events. Most safety members have received care of one sort or another from CHEO, and when they would discuss their experiences, the same kinds of barriers would be mentioned again, and again, and again. In consultation with some trans adults who have done similar kinds of work, and with a bioethicist, they developed a survey. Through word-of-mouth and online mechanisms, they invited trans and gender-diverse youth and their parents, who had experience of the gender clinic at CHEO, to complete the survey and share their experiences. They received responses from 53 youth and parents. Many reported quite positive experiences in a lot of respects, but many also reported various barriers and negative experiences. This included unnecessary delays to receiving care, inappropriate assessment and gatekeeping processes, irrelevant and unnecessarily intrusive questions, pressure to conform to a stereotypical transition path, lack of explanation for various procedures, inappropriate physical exams, and more. In addition, some youth reported problems even with basic signs of respect, like having their correct name and pronouns used. This seemed to be largely related to issues with the records system at the hospital. In general, parents tended to report overall more positive and fewer negative experiences, while the highest proportion of negative experiences were reported by non-binary youth and trans-feminine youth. The report can be downloaded from safetyottawa.ca. 
Members of the group have met with staff from CHEO both before and after the release of the report, and are encouraged by what they've heard. They're keen to continue to talk and to collaborate with hospital officials and medical personnel, and work towards changes that will reduce barriers to care. They also hope that safety's work, reflective as it is of features of trans healthcare that aren't just true at CHEO but happen across all age ranges and institutions, can be part of broader efforts to make change as well. Caden Seaburn is a Bachelor of Social Work student at Carleton University and a community organizer and advocate, and Jay Burns is a high school student currently finishing grade 12. Both are active members of safety. I speak with them about gender-affirming healthcare for trans and gender-diverse youth, about Safety Ottawa, and about the group's research and advocacy. Hi, I'm Jay. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm currently a high school student finishing grade 12. My name is Caden Seaburn. I use they, them, or he, him pronouns, and I'm a Bachelor of Social Work student at Carleton University and a community organizer and advocate in Ottawa. SAFETY stands for Support and Education for Trans Youth, and we're a grassroots by and for trans and gender diverse youth group in Ottawa. That means that the group was founded and is like organized and run young trans and gender diverse people for other young trans and gender diverse people and their parents, siblings, family members. We host drop-in kind of hangout events usually twice a month for people to just come and connect and spend time together and make friends. And then we also do some advocacy work, including the work that we've been doing recently around access to gender-affirming healthcare for trans and gender diverse kids and youth in Ottawa. I met Jay and a lot of the other folks who are involved in organizing safety through a trans youth group that we were all in a few years ago. We're kind of having conversations over a couple of years. None of the trans youth groups that existed in Ottawa were run by trans or gender diverse people. And so people were going into like mainstream service provider organizations and going to trans youth groups that were often run by social workers or service providers who were not trans. And people really enjoyed those groups in some ways, but also found that it didn't necessarily meet all of what people were looking for. Because in a lot of cases, trans youth just wanted to have a space where they could hang out with other trans youth in a space that wasn't necessarily like medical or pathologizing, but was just a place to kind of like hang out and make friends and chill. And so that was really what we wanted to create. One of the things that's really exciting for us about safety is that because it's so grassroots, we're not funded by anyone really. We're just kind of funded by community donations and fundraisers, and we're just organized by all the youth who are interested in being involved. So that means we have a lot of freedom in what we want to do. We can have meetings wherever we want to have meetings. We can do whatever kinds of activities we want, and it lets us be a lot more responsive to whatever it is that people who are attending the group want to do. And also be a little bit broader about the age range of the group, because a lot of the trans youth groups that exist, or really like any kind of 2S LGBTQ plus groups that exist in Ottawa, tend to be targeted either at really young kids and queer families, or specifically at high school students. And we knew that there was a lot of like elementary school age trans kids who were interested in having a space to connect as well, as well as folks who had finished high school or who were older than 17 or 18, but who still wanted to have a space like that. Safety is really cool because we can be really flexible about those things. And we have folks of all ages that come to the group. And it also lets people make connections with people who are different ages or have different experiences and be able to share that space. The month-to-month activities, I would say, are really varied. In the summer, we tend to go and hang out at parks. We've done bowling. We've done gardening. Generally, we'll have one meeting a month where we're just at a local community center and we just kind of hang out. But yeah, it tends to be varied activities because it's just kind of based on what people are interested in doing. The folks who come to the group vary a lot depending on the event and just depending on the day. Often there's a lot of teenagers or like young adults, high school-ish aged folks who come to the group. Um, often some younger kids who sometimes come with like siblings or family members or parents, and then sometimes older youth or adults who come and hang out as well. Typically, we've had anywhere between four or five people hanging out at events up to like 20 or 30. Expand on why it's important to have a group like that, focused on providing a place for trans and gender diverse youth to just meet each other and hang out. 
it kind of helps with less of a stigmatization of how trans people are viewed because a lot of the time we're viewed in a medical context and we're viewed as like kind of an oddity even in youth groups there can be a feeling of oh we're all gonna go sit around and talk about our struggles and talk about like oh this is why it sucks to be trans and this is the transphobia we faced and this is the hardships we faced but at a group like safety it's more of a place where you can just be around like-minded people and be around people who have had the same experience. And while there definitely is talk of like, oh, the hardships we faced, it is also just a really nice place where you can just kind of like hang out and not have to worry about being seen as out of the norm. Where did the idea of the survey and the report come from? Basically at every meeting with trans youth and with other trans people, we always end up just kind of standing in a little circle and talking about our experience going through that healthcare system. Most of this is because in Ottawa, for youth under the age of 18, we all go through the same place. We all see the same doctors. So we all have this common experience that we talk about. And it was really interesting because we would end up hearing the same experiences over and over from different people. So we decided to actually get those experiences down on paper and see what CHEO and what the healthcare system could do better to help the people that they're trying to serve. As we were having these conversations, there's a lot of things that came up over and over again where people had really similar experiences or had encountered really similar barriers to accessing the healthcare that they needed. It became this repetitive narrative where like, we all know that these things are happening. We all know that people are having the same negative experiences, but there isn't necessarily a feedback mechanism for people to share that information with their providers. And so within the clinic at CHEO, they definitely like don't have enough funding and don't have enough staff. And there's never really been a method set up for people to provide feedback to the clinic about their experiences. And also because of the way that the power dynamics work within the healthcare system in general, but specifically within a clinic like that, is that because there isn't really anywhere else in Ottawa where people can receive the same services, there's definitely a feeling among a lot of the youth who are going through the clinic there that they're really concerned about maintaining this working relationship with their providers, where if there's something happening that is making them uncomfortable, a lot of people aren't comfortable expressing that to their providers because they really need this care and that's the only doctor that can provide it. And so they're worried about fracturing that relationship, I guess. Because of that, we were hearing about negative experiences that people were having, but we realized that not all of that information was necessarily getting back to the providers or those conversations weren't happening in like a collective way. There might be individual youth who were providing feedback to their providers, but that wouldn't necessarily be taken as seriously as like a large group of us who were all able to collectively talk about the experiences that the community more broadly was having. What did you do to go from the idea to actually developing a methodology for the research? We're initially hanging out at an event and people are having these conversations again and we're like, hey, let's like do something. And so we have some really good relationships with adults who have done similar kind of organizing in Ottawa around access to gender affirming healthcare for transgender diverse adults. We've done some work with them in the past and had some really good conversations with them. And so we started having conversations with them about the work that they had done in the past and things that they had found were helpful or effective. We ended up deciding to create a survey where we could ask all the questions that we knew needed to be asked because we've been having these conversations for so long. We all sat down together and came up with questions that we could put in a survey that we thought would get at all of the conversations that we knew that people wanted to have because they were having them every time we had events and hung out. There's about seven of us on the team who were involved in creating the survey, and about half of those folks were previous or current clients in the clinic at GEO, and then some of us, including myself, weren't, but have worked with and have friends who have been through the clinic for quite a while. We created the survey over the course of last summer, and then it was open for about a month at the end of last summer to collect responses from youth and then also from like parents or caregivers who either were currently clients in the clinic or had been any time in the last few years. We also did consult with a bioethicist just to make sure we were doing the right thing in our questions and also trying to eliminate as much bias as possible. What kinds of questions did you end up asking? 
there's a bunch of them. There's the demographic questions, which is like, how do you identify? How old were you when you went through the clinic? How old are you now? There's questions about physical exams, the types of questions that doctors were asking them, the amount of time it took for them to like see a doctor, the amount of appointments it took to get on Lupron, which is the most commonly prescribed hormone blocker. I think it's the only one that CHEO prescribes currently. And then the amount of time it took to get on hormones, as well as what did they want out of the clinic, how they thought the clinic could be improved. There was a lot of questions about people's overall experience and then questions about things that they felt went well and things that they didn't feel went well or could have gone better and then targeted things based on what we knew that people were having conversations about. There were certain questions that people had had a lot of conversations at safety events about being asked while they were going through the clinic. Uh, And to make sure it's clear for listeners, Caden is talking here about questions that medical staff in the clinic asked trans and gender diverse youth in the course of providing care. Like questions about their gender expression from when they were kids. Like, what kinds of toys did you play with when you were a kid? What kinds of clothes did you wear as a kid? Questions about sexual orientation, things that a lot of people had talked about feeling really uncomfortable with, or just that they like didn't feel relevant or felt kind of like weird about the fact that they were being asked those questions. And so for those questions that we knew that people had been having conversations about for a while, we asked about them specifically to get a sense of whether everyone was being asked the same questions or whether there's any kind of difference in who was being asked those questions or not. How did you recruit participants for the study? Mainly through word of mouth. Caden is one of the most known trans advocates in Ottawa currently, so he has a bunch of resources. We advertised it at meetings, and we tried to advertise it through contacting other community organizations. We promoted the survey mostly online. Primarily, we were trying to reach folks who were connected to our group, and then through Facebook groups that all trans and diverse folks are in, or things like that. It's probably not representative of all of the folks that are in the clinic at CHEO since we didn't have a way of systematically contacting the client since we weren't working directly with them at that time. But we tried to distribute it as broadly as possible within transgender diverse youth in Ottawa. What were some of your key findings? One of the big things for me was around the assessment process and the process that youth were going through in order to be able to access the services that they were looking for. So primarily when folks are referred into the clinic at CHEO, mostly they're people who are looking to receive hormone blockers or hormones as part of their medical transition. And a lot of the questions that we had asked and the just like general qualitative responses from people were about the process that they felt like they had to go through in order to receive that care that they knew that they wanted. And so people talked about feeling like they had to prove that they were actually trans or that they were who they say they were or that they actually needed to receive this care and that it felt like kind of a gatekeeping process. When people were talking about being asked questions about like the kinds of toys that they played with as a kid or the kinds of clothes that they wore or who they're attracted to or things like that, those are questions that are not actually relevant to determining whether or not someone's trans in the same way that like we wouldn't ask a cisgender girl what kind of toys she played with as a kid. And like if a young girl plays with trucks, we don't decide that that must mean that she's actually a boy and that she's trans. And yet when trans kids are going through this process, those are really common questions for them to get asked in a way that feels to a lot of people like it's kind of a test of whether or not they're actually trans and whether they have this typical narrative of their trans experience. So that was one of the big things that stood out a lot. One of the questions that we asked was about people's experiences with physical exams going through the clinic. And so a lot of people had talked about the fact that before they were able to start hormone blockers or hormones, that they had various types of physical exams, including like genital exams or chest exams. Some people seemed kind of unclear about why that was happening or did not feel like their boundaries were respected in that or feeling like they didn't understand why it was necessary or that it shouldn't have been necessary or that they were being told that they didn't have a choice. And that was definitely really concerning for us. 
In general, there's a sense of a lot of people feeling like they didn't have autonomy over the care that they were receiving or that all the power was in the hands of these doctors who got to make decisions about their life and about whether or not they're able to access this care that they really need. For a lot of people, having access, especially to things like hormone blockers, feels really time sensitive because if someone is 12 or 14 and is like actively going through puberty and it's a puberty they don't want to be going through, having access to hormone blockers just kind of like pauses that and gives people time to make decisions about whether they want to go on hormones or just more time to be able to access that care. People are waiting a really long time to be able to access that care, and though there's not very significant medical risks to accessing that, and that's something that people really need and that makes a really big difference for people. So it's really concerning that it takes so long for people to be able to access it and that people are feeling like they're not necessarily being taken seriously when they're saying that they need it. I think another one of the main things that a lot of people were concerned about was research. Don't get us wrong, we don't think that Chio is doing secret research on trans people, but more of a concern was just unnecessary questions for the curiosity of doctors and feeling as if we were lab rats. So one of the other things that jumped out at me from your results is that a significant proportion of respondents reported even very basic elements of respect, like using their correct names and pronouns, wasn't always happening. What do you make of that finding? Part of the issue definitely has to do with the electronic system that exists within the hospital. There's like different clinics within the hospital where people might be receiving services. And it seems like maybe not everyone is looking at the preferred name spot in their file or seems to know to ask about pronouns or is taking the time to do that. And so people definitely had pretty mixed experiences with that or with having the wrong names used in like phone calls home or letters or when they're being called in from the waiting room to their appointments, which is definitely something that just makes people feel a lot less safe. We also found that non-binary folks in particular often had more negative experiences within the clinic or more issues with having their pronouns respected and didn't necessarily feel like their gender was affirmed in the same way as people who had a more binary experience of their gender. Hospitals or gender clinics tend to say that they don't have very many non-binary youth who are accessing their services, which seems weird to us because there's a ton of non-binary folks that come to our groups and that we know are accessing those clinics. What shows up really clearly in the results in the survey is that almost half of the folks who identify as non-binary didn't share that with their providers, either because they had initially told some providers that they identified as non-binary and hadn't had a positive response, or because they had friends who felt really clearly like their access to care had been delayed because they identified as non-binary. When we talk about wanting to receive care that's gender affirming and that's like actually meeting people's needs, it's really concerning that people aren't able to be open about their identity and their experience and what it is that they actually need from the clinic. And there's a lot of different variations to the care that people might need to receive or want to receive. So it's really important for us that people should feel comfortable in whatever setting they're receiving that care, being open about their identity, having their name and pronouns respected, and being able to have open conversations about what it is that they're looking for from their care. Connected to that, you also found some pretty big differences between different groups of participants in the study. What were some of those differences and how do you interpret them? I think, first of all, parents find it a better clinic than the youth find it to be. A lot of the time, parents aren't in the room with you. You go in and the parents wait in the waiting room and you're alone with the doctor for however long your appointment takes. So the time that the parents are with the doctors, I feel like it's easier for them to feel supported and feel like their youth is getting what they need because they're not there during the uncomfortable questions. They're not there during the uncomfortable exams as well. This is like a major resource for parents to go to. A lot of the time, the trans youth will know what they want, but the parents need a little bit more help along the way, feeling okay with the fact that their kid is trans or feeling as if they need the support that the clinic can give. So there is, yeah, just a major difference of experiences. 
as well, I think that the pool that we drew from is overwhelmingly white and middle class. And those parents are more likely to trust doctors because they are more likely to have had good experiences and think that those are people who are trustworthy. Within the clinic and within other clinics that serve transgender diverse youth, there's often a really big emphasis on family-centered care rather than client-centered care. So this focus on really wanting to make sure that parents are supportive and parents are on board. Even though in Ontario, there's no minimum age of consent to access healthcare. When you turn like 12 or 14, you have access to like confidential medical records. Your parents don't have access to that information anymore unless you want them to for most healthcare. But what we find is that for transgender diverse youth who are seeking out this kind of care, there's often a really big emphasis on parents being involved. And I think service providers wanting to play a role in helping parents to understand or encouraging parents to be supportive of their children or youth, which definitely can be really helpful. But I think that also that can end up centering the experience of the parent, sometimes at the expense of the young person. Parents might feel really well supported by that process, but young people might be experiencing that just as more delays to access and care that they already knew that they needed because they're kind of like sitting around waiting for their parents to become more supportive or to agree or consent to them receiving the care, even though they already know that that's what they're there for and that's what they need. And folks who are transmasculine and who are really binary in their experience in general face fewer barriers to accessing healthcare and all of those kinds of things. There's kind of this idea of this stereotypical or correct experience of what it means to be trans. You've always known that you were trans and you've always been either really masculine or really feminine. You follow this particular narrative. And so for people who are very binary in their identity and who do have that experience, answers that they're genuinely giving to those questions are also the answers that doctors are expecting to receive. And that makes that process a lot easier for those people. Whereas for someone who might identify as non-binary or who maybe doesn't have that experience of understanding their gender, that process can be a lot more stressful and not go nearly as well for that person because their experience and the answers that they give to those questions aren't necessarily the answers that the textbooks about trans people say that they should be giving. Not only that, I would also say that trans misogyny plays like a huge role in all of this. Trans feminine people are viewed as more of an oddity, I would say. For a lot of people, it makes sense why someone would want, I'm putting quotations around that, to be transmasculine because men have all the power. And even in young girls, it's more accepted to be a tomboy than to be someone who's assigned male at birth who enjoys playing with dolls or wants to wear dresses. And that's because femininity is viewed as bad. And wanting to transition to a place of lower status isn't as socially acceptable as wanting to transition to a place of higher status. And that makes sense because we are in this misogynistic society. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's also a really long history within healthcare of transphobia and cissexism that really disproportionately targets and is focused around trans feminine people. And some of the questions that stood out to us as being really concerning, folks talked about being asked questions about like whether or how they masturbate within their assessment. And there was a lot more trans feminine people who said that they had been asked questions about that than trans masculine people. And that very much fits within everything that Jay was saying and within this kind of like history of transphobia and cissexism within the healthcare system. What are the key recommendations that you're making to CHEO? Within the report, we didn't necessarily lay it out as really clear-cut recommendations because our goal was really to have a conversation with the clinic, present some suggestions of where we could go from there, but to also have that be a collaborative process. And so we've had a few meetings with staff in the clinic, and we're hoping that that's going to continue. But some of the things that were the most clear-cut for us were definitely around, like talked about names and pronouns, really making sure that people's names and pronouns are being respected within the clinic, within other aspects of the hospital, and anywhere else that they're being referred to. We talked a little bit about people being more actively included in conversations about their care. That person should really be at the center of that conversation. 
We talked a little bit about physical exams. There are some cases where physical exams could be helpful, but it's not a best practice within the majority of other clinics that we know of, like genital exams like that to be required for everyone before they're able to start hormone blockers or hormones. And that definitely shouldn't be the case. You know, like the rules of consent still apply in medical settings and people should have the right to be able to not have those exams happen and still be able to access the care that they need. And within all aspects of the clinic, just to think really critically about all of the practices that exist and where they came from, how were they developed and why, and do they really make sense? Are they really necessary? Are there ways of implementing like a trauma-informed kind of harm reduction approach? Those are conversations that I think need to happen within the clinic and also with the community's involvement. Safety definitely wants to be involved in creating the solutions that come from the problems that the community has identified. And I think that probably other folks who are accessing the clinic and who are involved in the community would like to be a part of that as well. Healthcare providers in general need to work on regaining trans people's trust. Just because there has been so many years of oppressive practices and so many instances of like unnecessary practices. This issue isn't specific to GEO. They didn't create it. The practices that they use came from many, many other clinics who work with trans and gender diverse youth and children who have for like a number of decades. And I think that that needs to be part of the conversation as well, that it's not about placing the blame on individual doctors or individual clinics for causing this problem, but this is really a systemic issue and that there's now an opportunity that we're presenting to the clinic at Chio to be part of creating a solution and working with other clinics who have been continuing to move forward and working from like a truly gender affirming care model. There's these three different like models of care, one of which is the psychotherapy model that's essentially related to conversion therapy. One is the Dutch protocol or this kind of like wait and see approach where people aren't necessarily discouraged from transitioning or discouraged from accessing care that they need, but that there's this idea that young trans people may not actually be trans or that youth who are coming into a clinic and seeking to access medical transition services might not actually be trans and therefore that we should kind of like wait and see what happens and give them more time to make decisions. And there's the statistic that's come from both of those models, this idea that like 80% of trans kids grow up to not actually identify as trans. And that's not true and is like really harmful, but is something that people hear a lot, even within Ottawa. A lot of the folks who we chatted with talked about being told that by their providers at various points in time or having their parents told that and that being used as a reason why they had to wait longer to be able to access care, even though we know that that's not true and the source of those statistics is not credible. But that really impacts the care that people receive. The third model is what's called the gender affirming care model. Essentially, it just means really listening to trans and gender diverse young people and believing them and providing them with the care that they need and not trying to act as like a gatekeeper or not trying to act in a role of weeding out who is or is not really trans, but just like asking them and following their lead and working with trans youth and letting them have some kind of autonomy over the care that they're receiving. The idea of gender affirming care is something that we talk about a lot and also something that sounds really nice. And I think that a lot of service providers who are really well-intentioned and are really wanting to support the trans youth in their care use this language of gender affirming care. But as we're seeing from the results of the survey, that doesn't necessarily mean that young people's experience of the care that they're receiving in those clinics aligns with the actual principles of gender affirming care. People need to have more in-depth conversations about what that actually means and concretely what are the practices that make a space gender affirming or that make a healthcare service gender affirming because it has to go beyond an intention of being affirming or being supportive in order to make sure that that's actually the experience that young people are having. You have been listening to my interview with Caden Seaburn and Jay Burns of Safety Ottawa. To learn more about the group's work, go to safetyottawa.ca. That's S-A-E-F-T-Y-Ottawa.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to TalkingRadical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. <laughs>